my task today is to open, is to open the Bible. And uh, I, I take that very seriously. So anytime you open the Bible, you want to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And two, more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happens. So if you take, let's follow an actual Bible, Colossians chapter 2. If you, if, if, if you don't or you're taking notes on something else, we've created some really easy to follow along slides um, along the way. I, I find it helpful in conferences like this if I summarize the previous speaker's talk so that we sort of have a flow in, in, in what we're doing. And la last night, Pastor Sam uh, preached an amazing word. And, and, and it's, it's very hard to summarize 40 minutes in, in one statement, but it was basically this, that we need to be unified in the faith. And one of the ways that we could do that is to get into the flow of worship in order to show the world what the divine relationship looks like in the Godhead. That, that is I am in you and you are me, let them be in us so that the world might believe. The idea is that to Jesus, the way he saw the world is that if his people show the world what the divine relationship looks like, um, it, it, it leads people to believe because they want that kind of connection and, and unity. That's my best summary of what we were talking about last night. And, and, and it made me think, you know, it's interesting that there's been people along the way who've tried to put language around what the Godhead relationship is. One word was Godhead. Another word is Trinity, you probably heard that one. And, and I'm for all those words, because you can't really encapsulate something that mysterious and that deep in, in one word. No one's gonna call it something and go, nailed it. But the, the, the earliest word to, to demonstrate that was a word called perichoresis. So, so the word before Trinity was perichoresis. Peri is a Greek, it's a Greek word. Peri is a perimeter, a circle. Choresis is where we get the word choreograph from. It's what you would do with a dance. So the earliest church, they called the divine relationship the divine dance. The, the idea of, of, of three acting in perfect unity. And that would, that would take this mastery of when to step up, when to step back, when to honor, when to submit, when to take your turn, when to give someone else their turn. It was like a divine dance. So to the early church, the question wasn't just will you be forgiven, it was will you dance? It was will you do that, will you be in step? with what's going on. The rabbi said that at creation, the divine dance wanted a fourth dance partner, so they created you. The, the issue isn't so much, will you just be forgiven? The issue is, will you dance? And, and this is what shout is all about. It's about coming together in unity and choosing to be in step with what God is up to. Which leads me to my task today. I started thinking about the theme and preaching into things that unify us, because it's very easy to be distracted with unimportant things that don't unify us. Fringe things, but there are things that should, and actually I would say must, it's essential to unify us. So this morning, I wanna to talk to you about salvation, because salvation is a thing that should and actually must unify us. But the problem with the word salvation is that words matter less than how we picture words functioning. Right? So there's salvation's used so many different ways in the Bible, but for us, it tends to get only used one way. And that is get saved so that someday you could go somewhere else. And listen, we embrace that here. That, that death doesn't get the last word, resurrection does, and, and, and there is an afterlife. But, but in, in that sense, salvation becomes someday, someday, someday the lion and the lamb. Someday no more sorrow. Someday no more pain. But actually, there's another element to salvation that's here, now, 
today. So there is a someday that we embrace, but we also embrace here, now, today. As a matter of fact, those video testimonies perfectly preached my message this morning in testimony form. I just want to sort of break down some of the theology of it. Because in in Colossians chapter 2, Paul is talking about the meaning of the cross and resurrection to these people in Colossae. And what what do we do with this now? This is Colossians chapter 2. It says, once you were, if you could bring that up for me, once you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has now made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. So the idea is there's this movement from death to life. That, that the Christian worldview is not one that says there is no suffering. That those people were suffering, I would say, greatly. That there is no suffering. But the Christian worldview says that suffering never gets the last word. Re- resurrection does. Death doesn't get the last word. Life does. So there's this movement from death to life, there's this forgiveness of sins, which later he says happened before the foundation of the world, which was an incredible sort of insight. That once you were dead in the uncircumcision of us, God made you alive with Christ by forgiving all our sins and canceling the legal indebtedness that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. But then it goes on to say, keep going, it goes on to say, in this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So in other words, there's this one sense that salvation is about death to life. There's another sense that salvation is about the forgiveness of sins. But there's an entirely different element of salvation that in one sense salvation is about God's intentional pursuit to confront whatever is there to oppress you. This is why it's so important, I can't say this enough, words matter less than how we picture those words functioning, right? And so there's a way to say something true that creates an untrue imagination. Like, I'll I'll give me an example, right? Jesus is your judge. True. But I promise you it just created an untrue imagination. I've asked us all over the world, hey, Jesus is your judge, what do you picture? Almost 100% of people say they picture a heavenly courtroom and Jesus in a black sort of robe as a courtroom official. So I say Jesus is your judge, but then people picture Jesus as this courtroom official with a gavel. The problem with that is, is that the Hebrew word for judge is not a courtroom official. It's someone anointed by God to set you free. And and, and you knew that to be true. There's an entire book in the Old Testament called the book of Judges, yes, and those people aren't courtroom officials. They're people anointed by God to set people free from whatever is oppressing them. And, and here's the thing, right? Is we say, hey, Jesus is your judge. Now press in and get close to Jesus. Ain't nobody want to be in court. Even if you're innocent, you don't want to be in court. But if we say Jesus is the one anointed by God to set you free from whatever's oppressing you, now come press into that. That's an entirely different story. And so I want to talk to you this morning about salvation. And it's not that I don't embrace the someday salvation. We all do. But in one session that's 32 minutes long, right, you can't cover all that. I want to talk to you almost entirely about the salvation that's available for us here now today. To be in the presence of the one anointed to set us free from whatever is oppressing us. As far as I know, one of the first uses of the idea of salvation is in Exodus Chapter 3. So this is, there's a group of people who were enslaved 
And God is not happy about their slavery. And here's what it says, if you could bring that up. It says, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, or the oppression of my people in Egypt. And I've heard them crying out in distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into a fertile and spacious land. In other words, I've seen the suffering of my people and I am determined to save them out of their suffering. Not just someday, but here, now, today. Now this has an allusion back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter two, it's talking about Eden and Adam and Eve and the whole story. And there's this weird sort of detail that's given. This is Genesis chapter two, verse 10. Let's look at that together on the screen. And a river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden, and then divided into four branches. The first branch was called Pishon, and it flowed around the entire land of Havilah, where there was gold, and the gold was perfect. Aromatic resin and onyx stones were also found there. So it says that there's a river called Pishon, and it's winding through the entire land of Havilah, and there's gold in the riverbed, and it's not just normal gold, it is perfect gold. Now there's so much stuff going on here. You, it's, it's a river called Pishon. Now Pishon is a word that means hope. It's actually a little bit deeper than that. All ancient Hebrew writing was in hieroglyphs because they grew up in Egypt. And so every Hebrew letter is a picture, every Hebrew word is a comic strip. So the comic strip on Pishon is like something looks completely consumed or something looks dead and then with, with all of a sudden bursts forth with life. The, the best example I could use is like a, an extinct volcano. Like we thought it was extinct, but now there's rumblings of new life. Something we thought was dead is now alive. You could also call that resurrection. You, you could call it surprise. Actually, in Hebrew, there is, there, there is no word for resurrection in ancient Hebrew because dead people stay dead. You don't have a word for things that they don't have any context for. So, so it shouldn't surprise us that the, the root word in Hebrew for resurrection and the root word for surprise are the same word, right? And, and that's, that's obvious. Like, if I died today and you came to my funeral on Friday and then on Sunday I saw you at the mall, surprise sort of cuts it. The, the idea is, is, that, is that something that looks dead is bursting forth. We'll call it hope. You could call it surprise. You could call it resurrection. But we'll call it for today hope. The, the, the word havila means suffering. So the idea in Genesis chapter 2 is, is there's hope and there's suffering. So, so the idea is that if you're in the land of suffering, there's a river called hope flowing somewhere in it. You just got to go find it. The, the, the issue is there's lots of rivers in the land of suffering. There's a river called give up. Sell out, compromise, make matters worse. You don't want those rivers. You want to find the river of hope. It says there's a river called hope flowing somewhere in the land of suffering. You just got to go get it. You got to find it. It's, it's hope and suffering flow together that faith is not enough confidence to get out of everything. Faith is a profound trust that that suffering doesn't get the last word. It's, it's this moment of that the, the, the issue is how do you find the river of hope? Well, it says you can find it because there's gold in it. Now, how does that help us with anything? Well, um, perfect gold, I, I, this is, 
I had a scientist in Perth actually show me this. It was just amazing and brilliant. If you take one part of perfect gold to 100,000 parts of water, it turns all the water blood red. He made it for me. It was in like a little vial. Just one part of gold to 100,000 parts of water, it makes a colloidal suspension, turns all of it blood red. It's how they make stained glass and things like this. I used to carry it around with me if I was going to talk about this. And, and people everywhere would say, why are you carrying your blood sample around? It, it looks exactly like a blood sample. At one time I was landing in a plane, it exploded. That's why I don't have any more. But it's, it, there, there's, this, there's this gold that turns the whole thing blood red. Also in the word gold itself, there's pictures again. The, the word gold is three pictures. It's an eyeball, a man harvesting supply, and then a house of God. So when the ancient Hebrew people read the word gold, they read, behold, the one who brings a substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God. So there's this message underneath the message, underneath the message, underneath the message. So if we put these concepts of hope and suffering and gold together, you get some idea in Genesis 2 that sounds like this. Next slide, if you could bring that up for me. It's, there's a river called hope. And it's winding through the entire land of suffering because behold, the one who brings us substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God through a river of blood. The idea is, is that when water turns red, hope is flowing through suffering. Huh. Fast forward to Egypt. I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt and I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I'm going to save them. I'm going to rescue them. Think through your Sunday school classes. How does God get the, the Israelites out of Egypt? He first does it through a series of ten plagues. Think through the plagues. What was the first plague? All the water turns to blood. Yes, to the Egyptians that would have been a curse, but to the Hebrew people there would have been a buzz in the camp. Hey, did you hear all the waters turning red, hopes flowing through suffering? We might be in the land of suffering now, but hope. Hey, did you hear all the waters turning red? Years later, in the, in the middle of the whole thing, Moses gets them out of slavery into the promised land by walking them through the red Red water, hope flows through suffering. They, they get to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain, comes back down. They, they've made a cow. The cow was made of, oh. Moses loses the plot and he beats the cow into powder and he makes them throw the gold into the water coming out of the rock and he makes them drink it for the remission of their sins. If you, if you throw the gold in the water, what color is the water? Red, hope flows through suffering. This is, this is evident in creation. Like, I've never been a part of a childbirth. I've never seen it. Everything I know about childbirth is on the internet, which is where you get all your facts. That's obvious. <laughs> I've never been a part of a childbirth, but I do understand it's a hectic thing. Takes a lot of energy to get life into the world, you know. But here's the basic thing that I understand is that when a woman's really pregnant and it comes time to give birth, what's the first thing that happens? Her water, yeah, the water breaks. And she'll be standing there somewhere and go, oh, my water broke, right? 
And when a woman's water breaks, what happens? She enters into a time of labor, suffering. And in labor, what happens? Two fluids mix together, blood and water. And when blood and water mix together, what happens? In the greatest suffering a woman could ever know, out comes a bundle of joy. Yeah, hope flows through suffering. When blood and water mix, it's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah oh, oh, years later, there's this rabbi named Jesus, right? Pretty important to us, right? And he shows up at a wedding in Cana, and he performs his first miracle by doing what? Turning all the water into, yeah, like, what was his point? To provide adult beverages for the party? No, like, like these people are oppressed by the Roman Empire, and without committing treason and getting himself in trouble with the government, he does something only the Jewish oppressed people to understand. He turns all the water red. There would have been a, hey, did you, is he, is he saying what we think we're, hey, hey, when water turns red, we might be in the land of suffering now, but hope is fixing to flow. Years later, he's at something called the Feast of Tabernacles and he stands up on the temple steps and at the closing ceremony, what they would do is priests would come in with pitchers of, uh, of wine and water. It was called the wine and water ceremony. And they would pour it on the altar until the spelt overflowed. And then when the spelt overflowed, a steady flow of blood, of wine and water would flow down the temple steps. It's in that context, Jesus stands up and says, I am the living Water, in other words, the hope that's supposed to flow through suffering that the temple's been promising you for years and failed to deliver, I am here to save the day. Hope flows through suffering. Years later, Jesus is having a really bad day. And he ends up on a cross, right? It's a bad day. You walk all day, you have the biggest meal of the year. One of your best friends betrays you in a midnight arresting. They beat him half to death all night before any, of his main, before any of his other followers could be up to resist the thing. He's on a cross by 9 a.m. Nothing you could really do by then. Rome had already done their thing. Jesus is being murdered by Romans with the conspiracy of some Jews. and It's a horrible thing. And Jesus is up on a cross. And at the end of the situation, they need to make sure he's dead before they pull him down. And the scriptures say that a Roman soldier, to make sure he was dead, took a spear and stuck it in his side. And what does the writer say? That out of his side came a steady flow of blood and water. What's the author saying? That in the greatest suffering a man has ever known, there's still hope flowing, that, that the cross is God revealed perfectly, that you'll never see a better picture of God than in the Christ that was willing to be crucified. In other words, the God revealed in Christ would rather be murdered than kill his own enemies. This is the God revealed in Christ. And what does that say? It means that hope flows through suffering. So is salvation someday? Yes, it is. Someday the lion and lamb. Someday no more pain. But the salvation in the scriptures also talks about, particularly the salvation revealed to Jesus, that salvation is here now today, that God is not just interested in getting you to heaven. God is interested to bring heaven to your situation. It's that. Like, if, if the only way we think about salvation is going to heaven when we die, that's okay if you're 107, right? 
Like, like if I say, what's Christianity? And it's like, I'm sitting on my butt waiting to go to heaven when I die. That's okay if you're 107. If you're 107, you can wait to go to heaven when you die. It's coming quickly, right? But if you're here today and you're 27 years old and something is oppressing you, something is making you suffer greatly, salvation better be about here, now. Today, the message to the world is not join us so you can go to heaven when you die. That's only a part of the story. The other part of the story is, hey, be a part of what God's doing in the world. Be a part of that divine dance so that hope can be brought to your suffering situation. You start looking at Jesus at the times he like just confronted oppression like you can't believe. Like there's this one time it says that him and his disciples were leaving Jericho. There was a blind man named Bartimaeus sitting by the side of the road begging. Now remember in those days, now we would never think this today. You'd have to be a really sort of marginalized sort of, I don't know, dipstick to think this, right? But, 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 But back then, they thought if someone was suffering, they must have done something for God to get them. So you had less compassion on the sufferer because you would think, well, they sort of just, God would not treat someone like that if, if they hadn't done something. And so, and so Jesus is walking by this blind man who's under excessive oppression from his own sickness and from the way society would have thought about him. And if you go back and read the story in the book of Mark, it says that as they were walking by him, he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples of Jesus shushed him. They rebuked him because he was interrupting Jesus. If you, if you fail to see the irony of that, the followers of Jesus were shushing the beggar in, in their own pursuit of Jesus. In other words, it's perfectly possible to submit to God's moral will to your life and still lose sight of his redemptive plan for everybody else, right? And we don't wanna do that, right? You, you, have, you have this irony of people, follow, not lost people, not pagans, not Romans, Followers of Jesus shushing the beggar in their own pursuit of Jesus. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, are we stepping over the beggar in our own pursuit of Jesus? Like, are we, are we stepping over the people suffering? It, say, like, shut up. Don't you see we're following Jesus here? Yeah, but Jesus is about them. This is the problem when people say, I'm all about Jesus, man. I'm all about, I, hey, I'm me too. I'm with you. And I think that's what we should be. As long as we never lose sight of being all about Jesus is being also all about love for our neighbor and and love for the oppressed. That you can't separate those two. You can't be humble before God and harsh with them. That doesn't really work. Jesus says, no, 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 call him. And Jesus does an in-your-face confrontation to the oppression he was facing. And he doesn't just save him one day. He saves him here, now, today. (laughs) There's this one time, there's this lady with an issue of bleeding. For 12 years, oppressed, outcast. She pushes through the crowd to touch the hem, the tassels on the corner, the talit hakum, my child. The presence of God is here. Get up. Jesus rescues her from her suffering. Is she saved one day? Sure, but for Jesus, salvation wasn't just one day. It was here, now, today. The message of shout is not, hey, just go to heaven when you die, which, let me be clear, 
we embrace that. Yes, but we also say the story is bigger, that Jesus isn't just wanting to get you somewhere else. Jesus is wanting to bring the rule of heaven here, now, today. He's the one, he's the judge. He's the one anointed to set us free. Which leads me to my least favorite story in the whole Bible for most of my life. But I think it's the greatest example of Jesus confronting oppression. But I never would, I never would preach on it, I actually ignored it. I hated the story. Until I learned the history behind it, then it became one of my favorite stories. It, the, the story is found in John chapter 5. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to tell the story. You can go back and read it if you'd like. Um, it's frankly the oddest, weirdest story to me in the entire New Testament, which is saying a lot, and, and, uh, unless you know the history underneath it. It's, it's frankly, to be honest, horrible. There, there was one edition of the NIV that in very bottom and very small print, they said, we're not sure why this story is in the Bible, but because it is, we're including it. Like, it is, it is frankly a horrible story on the surface. It's a story in John chapter 5 about a pool called Bethesda. And I, I'll, I'll tell the story fairly and well. This is basically what it says. It says, just inside the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there was a pool called Bethesda. And it says, occasionally, an angel would stir the water of the pool of Bethesda... And when the angel stirred the water, the first person in got healed and everybody else stayed sick. Is anybody okay with that? What a horrible story. This is how, this is how that story on the surface paints God. That God's in heaven somewhere and he's bored because there's not enough problems. And he's like, man, I'm bored. I need something to entertain me. Give me an angel over here. Angel, get over here. Get over here right now. Now listen, you see that pool? Yes, sir. You see it, you know what I'm talking about. Yep, yep, now only when I tell you, and only when I tell you, I want you to go down there and use your finger and stir that water, right? You got me? Now here's what we're gonna do. When you stir that water, the first person that notices and gets in, we're gonna heal them, and nobody else will successfully create a race amongst the afflicted, because nothing gets my God heart beating like a bunch of crippled people trying to move fast. This is gonna be awesome. And there's like bookies in heaven going 20 to win 80, 20 to win 80, 300 to one on the wheelchair guy. That guy's got no legs, 3,000 to one, right? So they're taking bets in heaven on who's gonna be the first. I hated that story. Frankly, I've never heard a message on it in my life. Then I got invited to study with a history expert in Jerusalem without boring you with the details of it. This guy heard something I did at a conference. He rang me and said, would you please come speak to my Messianic synagogue? And as a part of your payment, I'll teach you history for the week. We'll start as early as you want, we'll go as late as you want, I'll teach you history for the week. He teaches PhD level ancient Near Eastern history at the university there. I was like, well why don't I just come and let you do that without me speaking? <laughs> anyway. So one of the days, we walk into the, I'm turned around, we, we walk into the Sheep Gate in, in, in Jerusalem, and, and, and according to John chapter 5, what's right inside there? The pool of Bethesda. This is how interested he was in the pool of Bethesda. This is what he did. He went, yeah, 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 that's the pool of Bethesda. And then he walked away. Well, he had told me that I could stop him any time. And I just thought he thought the story was horrible too, and we ignore these stories, Right? But, but look, everybody has an imagination, right? So when you read the story of the Pool of Bethesda, how big is it? Like, I'll tell you what I thought. I, in my imagination, I thought the Pool of Bethesda 
was about the size of the bottom floor of this room. And I thought it was about two feet deep. Right? It can't be very deep. Why? Because crippled people trying to jump in. Right? If it's too deep, it's going to be very, it's not going to work, right? It's got to be like shallow. That's what I thought. So he says, yeah, 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 that's the pool of Bethesda. I could not believe what I saw. I, I took a picture. Let me show you the picture of the pool of Bethesda. So, if you bring that first picture up for me. That, that, that's the pool of Bethesda. Now, the reason that photo is of such high quality is because I took it myself. Photographers everywhere are trying to get strangers' hands in the top of their photo. I pulled it off. Get some of that. The Pool of Bethesda is 100 meters long by 30 meters wide by 40 foot deep. J just to give you some context, that's a, in the upper right corner there, that's a bridge with a grown man walking across it. It's huge. So I said to Ari, Ari was the history guy, I said, excuse me, did you say this is Bethesda? He said, yes. I said, well, let me sure I got my story straight. I said, is this where the angel stirs the water and only the first one in gets healed? He said, yes. I said, he said, do you have a question? I said, I do. <laughs> um, how many people died here? He said, what? He looked at me like I had nine heads. He said, what? I said, well, follow my logic, bro. If the idea is, is that the first crippled person in gets healed, no one else, imagine like being paralyzed and you're sitting by the side of that and somebody else, angels throwing the water! And you're like, oh, right? And you don't realize till you're in the water that you're number two. You're so dead, bro. He looked at me and said, this is his exact words, you're joking. Everybody knows this. I said, which kind of took me back. Follow my logic here. If everybody knows something and I don't know it, that literally makes me the dumbest person on earth. Right? He's like, you're joking. Everybody knows this. I said, yeah. Yeah, yeah, bro. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you do me a favor and let me in on what it is everybody knows, you know? He asked me two questions. One, first question, what religion was ruling Jerusalem when Jesus walked the earth? And the answer was Roman Caesar worship. Every religion operating in Jerusalem was, did so under the authority of Rome. There was upwards of 40 pagan gods operating in Israel in Jesus' day. There was Dionysus, there was Amun-Ra in the south, there was the goat god Pan in the north, there was, um, there was Addis, Adonis, Horus, Mithra, there was all these gods. Se second question he asked, he said, you didn't think the angel in John chapter five was the angel of our God, did you? I said, uh, it crossed my mind. His eyes got big, he said, what? No way. He said, he was like grieving. He's like, shame. Are there people who think the angel in John chapter five is the angel of our God? I said, there's a few. <laughs> um, 
mostly Aussies, mostly, <laughs> mostly Aussies or, or people from Gore. <laughs> there's a few, there's a, there's a few of us. He said, no, man. He said, he said, we got to talk about this then. He said, this is so obvious. I don't even include it on the tour. I, I was like, you might, you might ought to start including this one on the, on the tour. He said, no. He said, um, he said, Bethesda was the headquarters of the Greek goddess of healing, Serapis. He said, basically, where we're standing is, is, is that big picture. If you could put the main, uh, the, that first picture up again. He said, he said where, where you're standing right here is the ruins of the temple of Serapis. This was their front yard. It's a big, giant pool. The problem was it would overflow, and then water would go down into the city, and this was dirt roads. And so the Roman officials said, you got to do something to stop that. And so what they did is they dug a tunnel underneath the temple, and they created a second pool that was a flood retardant. It was a catchment. like a, um, It kept water from going down. And when the water was getting too high in the big pool, they would just pull a lever. The water would go underneath the temple, and it would fill up the water in the smaller pool to keep water from flowing into the city. He said, he said, the one you're reading about John chapter 5 is the smaller pool. Let, let me show you a picture of the smaller pool. Next slide. If, if, that next picture. Yeah, this is the smaller pool, which, which is a, a, about, it's about what I pictured. It's about the size of this room. It, it's, it's about two feet deep. As you can see, there's pillars and where people would be sitting. And there's holes where they would have moved the water. Now, now think about it. If you move water from a big pool to a small pool underneath a building... What's going to happen in the smaller pool? The water's going to bubble up. So here's what the Romans did. The Romans said to the priest of Serapis, hey, if Serapis is the god of healing, let's tell the people it's the angel of Serapis stirring the water and only the first person in gets healed. And here's what we'll do. We'll charge a premium for people to sit closest to the pool so that they'll have the best chance of being healed. And this is what they did. They put a plant Next to the pool, who was already healed, they told him when they were going to move the water, he was always the first one in and magically came out healed, which only exacerbated the myth and kept the oppressed, poor, marginalized, sick people paying the fee to the Roman government. <sighs> now I can preach it. So Jesus comes into the center of oppression of the poor and the afflicted and the marginalized and the sick. And if you think about the story, he doesn't just pick a random dude. He picks the sickest person in the room. It says he's been paralyzed for 38 years. That's a long time. If you're not 38, you have no idea what that is, right? 38 years is a long time. And he says, he's pretty sarcastic. He says, what's the matter, bro? The water doesn't work for you. And the, remember the paralyzed guy? He's like, but Rabbi, you know the rules. Only the first guy in get, gets healed, and I have no legs. And so the guy with the sore throat always gets in first. And they don't take numbers. I've been here 38 years, you know? And, and, then, and then without the help of stirred water, Jesus heals that man, essentially saying, the God I have revealed to the world does not charge people for healing. You can sit here the rest of your life under this nonsense, or you can see a different way to see God. That is an in-your-face confrontation to massive oppression. So I said to the historian, I said, everybody knows this? He said, Shane, look around you. It's everywhere. 
That picture right there, do you see where that shadow ends? There's a yellow plaque. You can't read it. So I blew it up for you. Let me show you what it says. Next slide. It says Temple of Serapis. It's on a plaque in the middle of the pool. Everybody knows this. It gets worse. Next to the plaque was a billboard. Let me show you the billboard. Next slide. This is the billboard. This is the thing of Bethesda. This is the history. This is the top of the guy's head teaching me. Brilliant, right? But, but, I, but I just want you to see what it says about Bethesda. It says, pagan medicinal baths. Pagan medicinal baths, which leads me to all kinds of questions. Like, if we were wrong about Bethesda, what else do we need to rethink? Maybe we should open more conversations about God instead of shutting them. Bethesda is an amazing story of the God revealed in Christ walking into massive oppression, not for someday, but here, now, today. A person sitting there oppressed for 38 years paying a fee for something that didn't exist. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. The God I'm revealing to the world does not do that to people. This is an in-your-face confrontation to oppression. There's blood in the water. Now, great sermons are not meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with, they're meant to be wrestled with. So let's ask a few questions. Next slide. What is driving you that you need deliverance from? I'm actually gonna call the musicians back and I'd actually ask you all to stand. You've been sitting long enough. Let's, let's all stand together. And um, I wanna minister to you and um, I want us to answer these questions inside. What's driving us that we need deliverance from? Not for someday, but here, now, today. What's, what is the slave driver that's demanding that you understand you are less than human? You just can't beat that thought, that addiction, that problem. Whatever the case may be, what's driving you? What is it that you need deliverance from? What are you doing to help free others from their slavery? Where are we participating in other people being set free? For bringing the power of God to them to help them be set free. But the primary thing I want us to wrestle with in this session is this question, next slide. Where do you need salvation for your house today? Not someday, but here, now, today. I am here to proclaim to you that there is blood in your water. Your water is turning red. Now, if you're here today and you say, last night a lot of you chose to accept Jesus, and I'm so glad about that. But my question right now is, is where do you need salvation for here, now, today? Where would you say, hey, I'm in the land of suffering and I need to find that red water of hope. If that's you, I want you to throw your hand up real quick. We're gonna pray together. Throw them up all over the room, all over the room. Yep, 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 yep. All over the room. We're gonna believe together. Yep, all over the room. Yep, 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 yep. Yep, we're gonna believe together that your water is turning Red, I said your water is turning red. What we're declaring here is that your water is turning red, that God is not just interested in you going to heaven. He is here for an in-your-face confrontation to whatever's oppressing you here, now, today. So Lord, I pray that an unction of your spirit would come over this place and you would help us see it for what it is, that suffering is what it is, but it never gets the last word. Would you do for us today what you did for the world and take on death and defeat it by dying and resurrecting? Lord, would you bring resurrection and hope and Pishon to our Havilah? May you do what you did and confront our oppressor here, now, today. Would you look this way? I bless you to know that God believes in you more than you believe in him. 
I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller for you today. I bless you to know that salvation is not sitting on your butt waiting for someday. Salvation is about God's intention to bring it here, now, today, to do an in-your-face confrontation. And your water is turning red. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless.